As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. We are live again. Welcome in, everybody. Another live room. This one after the conclusion of the 49ers offseason program. Another early conclusion, at least based on the original schedule, but this is customary for the 49ers. Kyle Shanahan is happy with the work that has been done, and he lets everybody go home for the summer about a week early. So, Matt, we got to see several practices, a lot of talk about the quarterbacks, but I think this entire 49ers roster is really exciting. So it's one of those things where we could sit down afterward and we could probably sit here for five hours talking. We're not going to do that to people. We're not going to do that to ourselves. But there is a whole lot to unpack about this 49ers team entering this long seven-week offseason. Yeah, for sure. Uh, quarterbacks are always uh, topic A. But I thought that the, the rookie class was, was interesting. Um, it seems like, you know, despite the fact that they didn't pick until the end of the, the third round, they got a lot of uh, bright guys. That was that was clear when we talked to them, and I think that was clear with what we were seeing on the field. Um, you know, it, it, only Jair Brown was got any sort of reps with the ones, but um, a lot of those rookies, a lot of the draft picks, were working with the second team group, and you couldn't tell that they were rookies out there. They they were moving around quickly. They were fast. I, I would say that it was a uh, a successful first step for that entire group, um, including uh, Jake Moody, who really kind of ended uh, the, the spring session with a bang, uh, kicking a 63-yarder. A day after he, he looked kind of wobbly out there, um, he, uh, he calmly uh, put in all five of his, of his attempts, including a really, really long one towards the end. So um, that uh, seems to be going as planned so far. Yeah, the Jake Moody thing is fun to watch because he's just got such an electric leg, a booming leg, I guess would be the better word to put there. And we, we, we suspected he did based on the resume from college. But until you actually see it up close and in person, uh, it's, you know, you don't really fully appreciate it. And the 49ers had a really, really good kicker in the several past several seasons in Robbie Gold. But he didn't have a booming leg. Robbie Gold is at the tail end of his career, who was more of an accuracy kicker, definitely wasn't that power leg. And Jake Moody has got a power leg. And Zane Gonzalez, to me, he's not a bad kicker either. And Matt, maybe we could just start with special teams because 
it's it's an interesting business discussion. The 49ers are carrying two kickers right now. And to me, it seems like the, the whole strategy is a no-lose situation for them that I can't believe more teams didn't think of. They traded for Zane Gonzalez, but they spent peanuts for that and essentially nothing. It's a pick swap in the seventh round, and that swap only happens if Zane makes the 53-man roster. So it's a no-lose situation. But what they have in Zane Gonzalez is an asset, and it's a disposable asset now that they've drafted Jake Moody. But you don't have to do anything with Zane Gonzalez right now. You can wait until a team gets desperate for a kicker, right? And if that's the case, then you're going to be able to maybe sell on Zane Gonzalez for who cares if it's only a sixth-round pick. It's still a sixth-round pick that essentially came up out of thin air that you didn't have before. Yeah, and the only reason that Zane Gonzalez is not a starting kicker is that he's got an injury issue, or he's had a, a history of injuries, and that's uh, that's kind of uh, uh, hurt his career. But, I mean, if, if he's healthy, if, if the 49ers are having a, a quote-unquote kicker competition um, and he shows up well in the preseason, uh, you know, that, that's going to reassure some teams that um, he'd, he'd be a good guy to bring in because he is good. He doesn't um, – uh, I, I don't. He, he's known for his big leg. Uh, his leg has not seemed to be as big, at least on the field goal attempts, as uh, Jake Moody so far. But yeah, I, I totally see that. I mean, just just look at the kicker situation. The, the mere reason the 49ers used a third rounder on Moody is because there were an abnormal number of teams looking for a kicker uh, during the draft, uh, six or seven. Uh, so, um, you know, three were, were actually drafted. So you can kind of surmise that there are still some teams out there that are looking to augment their kicker situation with, um, a young guy. And that's, that's what, uh, Zane Gonzalez is. So yeah, for sure. Um, that's a possibility. I'm sure the 49ers would like to get through the summer as healthy as possible because that allows you to keep two kickers on the roster. You don't need that roster spot for, another uh another space but yeah that that's that's uh that that's looking to be a strength this year uh you're two uh brian schneider you've got some sort of um standout special teamers on the team um maybe even jack coletto uh, who's probably the only undrafted guy with a with a great shot to make the 53-man squad he becomes part of that group but you, you do see the makings of uh, perhaps a, uh, a much better special teams unit than uh, we've seen in recent years, and, and that would be good because the 49ers um, got better last year, but they hadn't been very good in that regard for a while. And uh, you know that, that plays right into having a great defense. If you've got a, a great defense plus a great special teams, I feel like that's, that only makes your defense that much more potent. Absolutely. That's a formula that we've seen the 49ers ride to great success in the past. Probably that combination of great defense and special teams they haven't had since, what, 2011 with the Jim Harbaugh team. I mean, that was a mediocre offense, right? But the defense and the special teams, both superb. And, you know, it's not not that we're saying that the 49ers offense is going to be bad this year. They finished up on a roll last season after they picked up Christian McCaffrey. So, this is an opportunity for the 49ers to really field a true three-way juggernaut this year. If their special teams can be a top unit, and 
listen, over the final, what was it, 10 games or so, including the playoffs last year, the 49ers were a top five team in all three facets of the game. McCaffrey helped push that offense to, to number one. The defense blossomed back into the number one unit after uh, a couple, I wouldn't say down years relative to the rest of the league, but relative to the 2019 performance, the, the defense wasn't as good in 2020 and 2021, but it, it roared back with a vengeance in 2022. And the special teams unit found a way to be better toward the end of the season. And I think a lot of that was Brian Schneider's coaching. I thought that they improved in the coaching department. He fielded a lot of good special teams units over a decade in Seattle. And I thought we saw the 49ers' emphasis on special teams and free agency last year end up paying off on the field. And there was another emphasis on special teams this year in both free agency and through the draft. And it was almost an emphasis by necessity, right? Because the 49ers had to sign players that they thought had a chance to make an already stacked roster. And the way to do that is to say, okay, well, can this guy play special teams? So it's just kind of a natural focus that's happened on this phase of the game, Matt. With the offense and the defense already loaded with talent, they've naturally tried to acquire players who will fit into special teams. And if they can do that, then, then this could be a really, really balanced team. This, uh, this uh, discussion uh, meshes nicely with one of our questions here. It's from Stephanie S. And I suspect this is uh, Steph Sanchez, uh, who we both follow on Twitter. Uh, she asked, what's your guys' perspective on Matt Mayoko's belief shared on KMBR that he doesn't see any of the UDFAs, uh, undrafted uh, rookies, or late-round picks making the 53-man squad? I had some hopes for Braden Willis and Ronnie Bell. Um, I think special teams is a, is a big part of that. Um, I, I don't know if uh, Mayoko is including... Uh, sixth round, I assume he is, but I mean, um, this is a team that likes to keep a lot of linebackers on the 53-man roster because linebackers are, are good on special teams and good on the coverage units. So somebody like uh, uh, D. Winters or Jalen Graham uh, makes an impression. I, I can definitely see them beating out um, uh, 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 Demetrius Flanagan Fowles or um, boy, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on the, uh, oh, Curtis Robinson, who was on the 53 man for a, a, a big chunk of last year. Um, those guys were on the 53 man because they were really valuable on special teams. So, uh, one of those linebackers would have to sort of prove that. Uh, but we've seen that. I mean, we saw Jordan Mason do that last year. Uh, Jordan Mason was undrafted, really kind of dedicated himself very clever, very smart attack that he took um, to learning special teams, something he didn't do at Georgia Tech, um, became very valuable at that spot, uh, and then used that to sort of parlay himself into a uh, an offensive role. So, um, I mean, we're, we're going to have to wait and see, but uh, I, I think that those two guys uh, certainly have a shot. And I mentioned Jack Coletto. Uh, he just gives you a lot of bang for your buck. Uh, he, he can fill in in a lot of spots, and if he is as outstanding on special teams as Schneider thinks he's going to be, yeah, I, I think he's got a really great shot of making the 53-man squad. D David, what do you think? Well, I think, first of all, we can't undersell the fact that due to all the rules changes that we've seen in recent years, that it's not just the 53-man roster. It really is the 70-man roster now. 
as far as game day effectiveness goes. I mean, we've seen the 49ers utilize that practice squad uh, very efficiently in, in recent years. So just because somebody doesn't make the 53 uh, definitely doesn't mean that we won't hear from them, right? That this is, this is a situation where the 49ers treat this as a living, expandable roster uh, with that practice squad included. And, and you have to have it because 53 won't get you through a season. So, uh, you know, m- maybe somebody like Braden Willis doesn't make the 53. I currently have him projected to make it. I currently have Ronnie Bell projected to make it. I currently have Jack Coletto on the outside looking in, but I think that they'll be able to bring him back to the practice squad. And if they decide that that's too risky, maybe they do keep him on the 53. But either way, I think that we can't view that line of 53 as this hard line that can't be crossed because that's definitely not how the 49ers have operated. As far as those late-round guys go, uh, I know for a fact that the 49ers were very, very pleasantly surprised that Braden Willis was still available in the seventh round. I, I think they value him as much higher than a seventh round pick, but that they were able to get him there. So they got that, they got that value in somebody like Braden Willis is one of the top yak guys at tight end who is already a, a mean blocker, both characteristics, by the way, that I think can translate into success on special teams. Ronnie Bell's got that return ability that can be valuable for the 49ers, make him more versatile to make the roster. So We'll see in training camp, but my projection right now, and I keep that little spreadsheet of the projection, I have both of those guys uh, on the inside. I have Braden Willis as the fourth tight end, and I have uh, Ronnie Bell as the 49ers' sixth wide receiver. So we'll see how that pans out. But in my opinion, Matt, even if they don't make it, uh, it's not the end of their 49ers' story because they have utilized that practice squad with really, really good efficiency over the past several years. Right. And we should note that, you know, the rules are such that guys from the practice squad can be brought up on game days. So uh, it's a blurry line sometimes between practice squad and and 53 man squad. Sometimes practice squatters uh, can end up playing quite a bit during the season. Uh, Frank D has a question. He says uh, injuries are always a concern. Uh, Which unit do you fear is most thin? Which do you think is deepest? Uh, David, uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I think that the offensive line still has to prove itself in terms of depth, and I would like to see more cornerback depth if I'm John Lynch for the 49ers. And uh, they might have the tools and, and the raw materials there uh, to, to, to be a team that's deep enough, but I think that, that we need to see that from some of these players. So along the O-line, you've got your starting five set, right? Williams... Banks, Brendel, Burford, McKivitz. That's essentially set. Let's put it that way. But beyond that, you know, I have John Feliciano as a lock to make the roster. He's going to be your top backup along the interior line, left guard, center, right guard. I don't think anybody else is a firm 100% lock. I know they really like Matt Pryor. Sure, very likely to make the roster as your swing tackle. But I think Jalen Moore is going to have something to say about that or at least a chance to say something about that. During training camp, I want to see where Leroy Watson is, who, you know, he was a tight end a couple years ago. Spencer Burford's teammate in college, he's put on a lot of weight. He looks the part now, but he can he be a guy that makes the 53-man roster and is actual legitimate, uh, you know, capable depth for the 49ers at tackle? And then, you know, who else is going to step up and, and be an interior backup? Because you, you don't want to leave it only to John Feliciano. So is, is Nick Zakel ready to make that? second-year stride is somebody like Jason Poe ready to crack that 53-man roster 
uh, Joey Fisher, the, the undrafted rookie out of Shepard, who got all of that signing bonus money from the 49ers, is an undrafted free agent, I think like 130 or $140,000. There's a lot of raw material here to work with, a lot of moldable clay, if you will, but, but who's actually going to get molded? Who's going to be that depth for the 49ers? And then I can never skip the cornerback position in these discussions because the 49ers were burnt by lack of cornerback depth in 2021. And now I look at it and I see two capable starters in Charvarius Ward and Diameter Lenore. But beyond that, I'm, you know, really skeptical still because somebody like Ambry Thomas, I've got to see it to believe it because I didn't see it in 2022. I saw a good trajectory in 2021. Obviously didn't see it in 2022. Darrell Luter Jr., he's he's a rookie, right? So he, he obviously has something to prove to show that he can be a nice depth piece for the 49ers. I thought that Deshaun Jameson had a really nice offseason program. He's a 5'9 DB out of Texas. We talk about special teams adaptability. He had an electric return reel at Texas, so maybe he can punch a ticket onto the 70-man roster, at least with that. But um, maybe he is a depth piece. I don't know. They've got a lot of guys, Matt, but the guys aren't necessarily proven beyond the top two in Ward and Diamondo Lenore. Yeah, I, I would take cornerback as well. Um, and, and it's really just Ward who's got the experience there. So if, if uh, this team were to lose Ward, you'd be looking at Diamondo Lenore, who until late December, uh, it might have even been January, uh, people were, were very down on, um, giving up big plays, down, big downfield plays. And he identified that as his um, biggest area of focus. Uh, tracking the ball in the air, um, being able to, and this seems so simple for somebody who's played sports all, all, all of his life. Why, you know, why are you having trouble tracking the ball on those deep throws? Well, you've got to keep, keep track of the guy that you're covering too, and your back is to the ball. Um, I think it's a lot uh, more difficult than uh, maybe uh, we think it is, uh, but um, that, that's where his focus is this offseason. I think he's He's on, on the right path. Um, I like him because he's, he's just so uh, gritty, and um, he, he's got a, a quiet confidence about him. Uh, he doesn't seem to go in the dumps when, when bad things happen, which is uh, kind of a common thing for cornerbacks. So I'd say that that is the, uh, the, the thinnest spot, and then the deepest, I would say, is defensive line. Um, it's just, uh, a, a lot of names there, maybe only three stars and, and that, uh, that defensive end spot opposite Nick Bosa will be fun to watch. Uh, Cleveland Farrell look good in that last, uh, mini camp practice. I think he's ultimately going to be the, the starter there as Drake Jackson, who got a lot of attention this spring continues his maturation. I just don't, I just can't envision the light going up on quite that quickly for Drake Jackson. I think it will, but uh, I think as the season begins, it's going to be um, a little bit slower. Uh, let's see, one more question. We've got one from Fabian V. He says, do you believe Debo saying he's going to have a great season has merit, or is it just talk? Your training camp reports did not sound promising. Um, well, I mean, I think uh, Fabian's referring to our training camp reports that Debo wasn't practicing. 
Um, and, and, and he's right. I mean, that, uh, there's, there's a big distinction between what he did and what we saw Christian McCaffrey and Brandon Ayuk doing. These guys seemed ready. They seemed eager to really work on their skills and sort of uh, put themselves in a position to have a great training camp. Debo Samuel didn't have that, but it sounds like he, he had a, like a, a true legitimate kind of uh, slap in the face moment when he met with Kyle Shanahan and they went over his 2022 tape and neither guy liked what they were seeing on film. Uh, and uh, Debo Samuel has a lot of pride. Um, and when he gets upset, he, he plays really well. So it, it sounds like uh, he's going to take these 40 days or whatever it is before training camp begins and really get himself to a point where he takes off at the start of training camp. So that that's going to be something to watch. Um, in 2021, Debo Samuel was far and away the best receiver in training camp. In 2022, Brandon Ayuk was far and away the best receiver in training camp. And their you know, ensuing seasons showed that. Uh, in 2023, both of these guys seem like they're really motivated. Um, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see when, when training camp ends who looked like the better guy because, uh, like I said, when those guys are prepared and when they're motivated, uh, it, it shows on the field. Now, in 2021, I still remember the talk of training camp. The 49ers were calling Debo Samuel skinny Debo because he was just in such good shape at camp and he was catching deep passes, short passes, everything, and then he really started to punish opponents during the regular season. You can't really see that aspect of his game at camp practices because they're nowhere near as physical as actual games. But boy, once that regular season started, I remember the game against Seattle. They're down by two touchdowns late. They lost. It was week four. Trey Lance came in there in the second half. Uh, Samuel, there was a touchdown from about the 10 where he caught the screen pass and just bowled over four people into the end zone. And it was all, like a sixth touchdown in four games at the start of the season. And everybody was like, wow, you know, th th this is real. And, and that continued through the whole year. There were times when the 49ers just absolutely leaned on him. So as Debo starts, so Debo goes. It seems that whenever he comes in a little bit out of shape or, you know, there's something that puts him behind the eight ball as far as conditioning goes, as was the case in 2020 when he fractured his foot in the offseason, um, that that really carries with him for the whole year. In 2020, he had the hamstring issue that he directly linked to the, the broken foot in the offseason, and it wasn't good. But in 2021, when he was in shape from day one of training camp, it, it seemed to yield really fruitful results. So, uh, you know, you just have to take Debo's word for it right now. I don't think that he's ever uh, gone back on, on his word. When he, as Matt said, when he's been motivated, it has shown, and – he has had an all-pro kind of season. So it seems that he's motivated after that meeting with Kyle Shanahan. And I would pay a close eye to what he looks like at training camp because that's probably going to be a bellwether for what he looks like during the regular season. One more on the uh, wide receiver topic. Uh, Sterling B., which I think is Sterling Bennett, asks, what did you make of Danny Gray's OTAs minicamp? After having practically no impact on last season, how do you feel about his spot among the wide receivers depth chart. Um, I will say that uh, he was inconsistent. Um, there were a lot of drops, David, in uh, in, in the spring. Um, Juwan uh, Jennings had a bunch, and 
he tends to have a lot of drops in practices. Uh, I remember that happening last year, and you, you don't see that in the game. So that may be a kind of uh, practice versus game day duality about Jennings. Um, uh, Danny Gray, though, you know, got a lot of reps, and I think that was good. I mean, I think that's that's a real positive. No Debo Samuel meant that Danny Gray got a lot of work with all the QBs, including whoever was uh, the, the top QB that day. And um, he, he made some plays. Um, you know, the speed is obvious. It's obvious that the 49ers want to use him. You know, this is a running team. This is a team that is going to lean on uh, Christian McCaffrey a lot. And they love the idea of catching um, defenses cheating. Um, by sending Danny Gray deep and, and hitting him on a back-breaking play. So, I mean, he's valuable in that regard. And that's why I think that he's ultimately going to make uh, the 53-man squad. He's probably going to be in the same spot, basically that fourth wide receiver that he was last year. Uh, but, you know, he also slipped a few times and, uh, like I said, had a few drops. Um, it's uh, I wrote that, the light hasn't gone on all the way for him yet. It's blinking right now, but you're starting to see signs that he's moving in the right direction. I guess that's the most positive way that uh, that you can put it. What did you think about Danny Gray? I think that's a fair assessment, and that's what he needed to show during OTAs, right? He needed to show signs of moving in the right direction, and now he's going to have to really show it during during training camp. We're still really early in this process for some of these guys who might end up being bubble players for the 49ers. You know, I see it as Kyle Shanahan definitely wants a burner. He he historically has liked the burner on this receiving core in the past. Uh, they had uh, Marquise Goodwin, then Travis Benjamin came in, and I think he wants Danny Gray to play that role. Uh, they signed Chris Conley, the 30-year-old veteran, who, who's a straight-line burner as well. But Conley is on a one-year contract, and Gray's a third-round pick, and you still have him under team control for three more seasons, it's just way more beneficial for the 49ers to develop Gray and see him become, you know, that the, the owner of that burner role in this 49ers offense. So as long as he keeps on progressing, I think there's a natural bias from the 49ers to have him take that spot, if you will. And we'll know more in training camp. But I do agree. It was up and down during OTAs. I do think he had more of a presence than we ever saw last year, which you, you would hope for and you'd expect from a second-year man, especially a second-year receiver in Shanahan's system. A lot of these first-year receivers, it's need to kind of not have that body language, not have that presence that you'd want because you're Shanahan so particular with players in that position and you don't quite have that body language. You don't quite have, um, you know, that, that just you're not commanding the respect that you would want a receiver to command. But in that second year, you want to see that receiver start to take those strides. And we'll see if that ends up being the case for Danny Gray. Yeah, you, you might even look at Danny Gray and Ronnie Bell as sort of opposites uh, in a lot of ways. Like uh, uh, Bell played a lot at Michigan. He uh, was in on a lot of big plays. The 49ers had a lot of confidence that he's going to pick up the, uh, the offense quickly and, and, and could have a, uh, a role on this team. What, what he lacks is really kind of um, – uh, big-time physical skills, uh, and that's where Danny Gray obviously excels. He's the fastest guy on the team. But I, I remember talking to his SMU coaches last year, 
and even them, I mean, these are like his, his parents almost. I mean, these are these are people that, are, that you know love the guy and have invested in the guy. And as fawning as they were about Danny Gray, they realized that he was still a work in progress, even as he was leaving SMU, um, and that it might take a little while for that light to fully come on. So I, I think the 49ers understand that, that they're going to give him some rope. Um, but, um, yeah, I mean, uh, your, your point about his presence, I think is a good one because that was, that was palpable out there. He was one of the guys that they were looking to. He didn't always come through like Brandon Ayuk did, uh, but, uh, he's on his way. Let's try the stage cue. I think we've got one person here. Um, this isn't always great, but we'll see if it works. We got Josh M. Josh, you are, uh queued up if you are still on the line hello josh m hey matt can you hear me got you i can hear you perfect awesome thanks for having me guys and thanks for doing this it's always a lot of fun love all the you know real-time updates and keeping us in the know i'm curious um you know speaking on the lines of depth i'm really curious about the backup tight end position you guys had mentioned briefly Braden willis earlier and all the excitement around him I'm really curious about the other guy, uh, Cameron Latu. I'm actually really low-key excited about his potential after reading a little bit about what Scott McLuhan had to say. was just curious if he's carrying himself confidently and if he looks smooth and if you're seeing some of those basketball skills translate out there. Well, Matt has a big piece coming out on Cam Latu that I'm excited to read. So, Matt, why don't you take this one? Yeah, I mean, um, I think that the... Um, two words that uh, Brian Flurry, the tight ends coach, used to describe Cam Latu is raw power. And I think that sums it up really nicely because he's raw. Uh, this is the guy who went to Alabama fully intending to be uh, a pass rusher and then kind of switched midstream to tight end. So Flurry was, was saying to me that, yeah, Cam Latu is, is uh, not quite as uh, advanced as some other rookie tight ends are entering the NFL. But what they like is the power side. And you, you heard George Kittle say this the other day. This is something a lot of people say. He, he, he was bigger um, than I expected him to be. Um, and he's a very, very strong, powerful guy uh, in that he's got all the, the raw materials to be um, you know, the, the inline blocker that they need to complement George Kittle, um, you know, a, a guy who can move not just uh, linebackers, but uh, defensive linemen. He's got, he has an innate strength about him. Uh, what Flurry's job is going to be is to kind of teach him all the details to kind of use that, that strength most effectively. And, and that's, you know, that's the question with, with any rookie. How quickly can he pick it up? to be at an NFL level, but I think everybody was very impressed by him. Um, you know, uh, Trey Lance's nicest pass. Oh, I guess it was, no, I'm sorry. It wasn't Trey Lance. Trey Lance threw a nice pass downfield pass in seven on sevens on Wednesday to George Kittle. Sam Darnold's nicest pass of the day was a deep ball to Cam Latu. And it was, it was deep. I mean, we're, we're talking, it probably would have been a, a 50 plus yard touchdown. He got ahead of um, Horn Burks. Um, so, I mean, that, that's something that you didn't see a lot in the Alabama tape. Um, but, uh, I think the 49ers believe that 
this is a guy that was starting to kind of show what he could do at Alabama, and there's a lot more uh, left in him. The, the question for 2023, I think, is you know how quickly can he kind of pick that up? And 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 I get the impression talking to a lot too that it wasn't just the kind of the the technique and things like that that he was lacking when he first converted uh, to tight end at Alabama. There was a confidence issue too. He just didn't know if he could do it. He'd never done it before. And here he, here he was at Alabama, of all places, and having to deliver. Uh, and I got the, the, the distinct impression that his confidence in himself at that position was still growing as, as he was leaving Alabama. So I, I think that's a big part of it, too. So when he makes a big play um, in practice like that, I think that's, uh, that's a really, really big thing. But um, I'm, I'm sort of uh, a lot more impressed and sort of excited about him today, uh, Josh, than I was when they, when they drafted him in, in, late, uh, in late April. That's great. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for the question. Um, let's, let me uh, scan a little bit for another one, David. Um, okay. All right, here's a defensive side of the ball question for you, David. This is the one, this is the one I get a lot. And, and we've just seen uh, Frank Clark sign with the team, a couple of other uh, uh, pass rushers sign uh, as the spring sessions come to a close. Joseph B. asks, what do you think the 49 you do you think, sorry, do you think the 49ers will make a push for Ngakwe? Um, Yannick Ngakwe, who really kind of fits a lot of what the 49ers do at that defensive end spot opposite Nick Bosa. Well, I really think it comes down to price. They've armed themselves with the ability to do it with some of the restructures, the latest one being the Christian McCaffrey restructure. But you have to remember that unused cap room carries over to the next season. And when you look at the 49ers' finances for 2024, this is where it starts to get tricky. Where they re- and right now they have to be thinking about every million, a million here, a million there. That's what's going to ultimately determine if they can keep this team together, at least the core of the team together, and surf that wave of, of the growing salary cap moving forward into 2024 and beyond. So they have more liabilities right now in 2024 than the cap is even expected to be, right? We don't know what exactly what it will be, but they're over. They're going to have to figure out a way to get creative and get under. One way that will would really help is to carry over some unused room from this season into next. So that's why I say it depends on the cost. You saw Frank Clark signed the other day with Denver for, I believe, something around 7 to $8 million a year. That's that's steep, you know. I, I look at anything over three or four million a year uh, to be a little expensive for the 49ers' taste right now. Now, if Yannick Ngonque is guaranteed to give you ten sacks, and uh, you know, of course, you start thinking somewhere between five and ten million might be worth it for this season. But I think at this point, the 49ers are showing a lot of faith in Drake Jackson. He's put on a lot of muscle. Nick Bosa said that he's just as fast, even with that added bulk. And that's a very cost-effective option. If you're going to go to one of these veteran edge rushers, then they're going to want a lot of money. And any, you know, I liken the salary cap and keeping a team together to a sink that is filling up with water. And at some point, you know, you could that sink is going to overfill, and that water is going to start spilling out. That's you having to 
to cut players. I don't know exactly where that point is. The 49ers probably don't know exactly where that point is until they know what the salary cap next year is. But we do know the teams in the past have hit that point. The 49ers did in the 90s. The Rams hit it this offseason. They had to let go of some good players. So you, you don't want to, uh, you know, look up in the mirror and realize that your sink is overflowing um, because at that point it's too late and you can't sustainably keep the team together. So that's why they have to tap dance really, really carefully here at this edge rusher position. They're, they're in a good financial spot right now, but any more that they spend could could threaten, you know, what happens in the future. And if they can get in Gonquay or if they can get Justin Houston at a really cost-efficient deal, hell yes, I think they're going to go for it. But right now, they're probing the waters. They're holding out. They're playing a little stare contest right now because they don't want to blink too soon. They want to make sure that they stay on the correct side financially of things. Yeah, that's, that's my thought, too. I mean, they've, they've got my, – my, my interpretation of what they've done is that they think that the combination of Cleveland Farrell – uh, plus uh, Drake Jackson this year is going to, you know, they, they also have Austin uh, Bryant um, at that spot. Th- th- those three will sort of uh, stem the tide. And I think that their future thought is that Robert Beal is your Ngakwe, sort of your, your, your speed rusher, the guy that just kind of bursts off the snap, runs that arc to the quarterback really well, and that the future – at defensive end is a is a triad. It's Nick Bosa and uh, Drake Jackson and Robert Beal. This is sort of the bridge year, and and the bridge, the bridges are Austin Bryant and uh, and Cleveland Farrell. So I I, I think that's what the Forty ers want to have happen. I think Farrell kind of showed some things in that Wednesday practice that were positive. Um, not much you can take away from O line D line in the spring. Uh, but, uh, I, I, I think that's what the 49ers plan is. Speaking of O-line, D-line, uh, Mark H asks, how is Colton McKivitz doing? Any updates on his off season? Uh, and to be honest, I didn't, I didn't notice McKivitz much, which I guess is, is positive. Um, as I was just alluding to, uh, you know, there was, you know, the, the first OTAs we watched, the offensive line didn't even participate really they just kind of stuck to themselves the whole time uh, and then they were uh kind of slowly but surely uh added into the mix as, as practices got, uh got on and they cranked things up so there certainly wasn't any uh you know one-on-one stuff where it's Farrell going up against uh McKivitz not a lot to really kind of analyze with uh, the o-line the d-line really the running game in general um, you know, Jack Coletto was busy on uh, special teams. He didn't get in much on offense. So th- those positions are, are very hard to, to analyze. I can tell you that the 49ers think that they, that McKibbis is going to be a definite drop off from uh, Mike McGlinchey as far as run blocking. But they also think that he could be better at, at pass protection than McGlinchey was. Uh, so, you know, the, the aggregate is that, um, you know, it, it may not be as dramatic a, a change as, as we're thinking. Um, I think McKivitz really kind of instills a lot of confidence in them because of his personality. He's, he's a guy that, you know, gets along with everybody. He's friendly. He's just not uh, phased by much. 
Uh, McGlinchey kind of famously uh, got inside his own head whenever he would make a mistake. He wanted so much to be reliable. He wanted to be the guy, Mr. Responsibility, nickname was CEO, that he put too much pressure on himself and would kind of go into the tank. Um, they're not worried about McKivitz in that regard, uh, which I think is you know great for any position, especially um, one that can be kind of scrutinized like, uh, like the tackle position. Uh, David, what are your thoughts on Colton McKivitz? I think you hit the nail on the head when you talk about the potential improvement in pass protection, or that might be what the 49ers need to get to the next level. Uh, you know, pass protection on the right side of the line has been an issue for this team through essentially throughout the entire Shanahan Lynch era. It was a huge problem in the Super Bowl against the Chiefs. That was when Mike Person was dealing with a neck injury and uh, really struggling there on the right side. Obviously, McGlinchey is uh, through those first three years. McGlinchey was a below-average pass protector. He got better over the past two seasons, but it, it was still an issue against some of the stronger edge rushers like Michael Parsons of, of the Cowboys. And the 49ers offense really did uh, start to see some, some issues in the playoffs that it didn't see during the regular season. And you look at these teams that, that have won the Super Bowl recently, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers at the end of that 2020 season, that was just a rigid offensive line. The you know, Last year, the Kansas City Chiefs, they invested so much in the O-line specifically in pass protection, and they were able to stonewall the Eagles. I think the 49ers have gotten a lot better in pass protection. The metrics say they were a top 10 pass protecting unit in each of the past two regular seasons, but I think they still needed a little bit of a push forward, uh, especially against playoff competition. And if you look one through five at the offensive line, Trent Williams is obviously good enough. Aaron Banks should make a second-year jump. I mean, that's what you're counting on if you're the 49ers. Same thing with Jake Brendel at center. Same thing with Spencer Burford at right guard. So that leaves that right tackle position. How are you going to improve there? Well, you could change players there, and that's what they did. And they have acknowledged that the the run blocking is, is going to go downhill because Mike McGlinchey was so good at that. But it, it won't take all that much to be better than Mike McGlinchey at pass protection, even even a better version of Mike McGlinchey because he was a lighter, more athletic guard that wasn't a tackle that wasn't as good at anchoring. And in the very small sample that we saw from Colton McKivitz last year, uh, he gave up hardly anything. I think it was 40 to 50 snaps, and it was against the Rams. Most of that was against the Rams too, and he was really, really good. And the 49ers are very confident that he could perpetuate that over a longer stretch. And if he does... That might be the missing ingredient for this offensive line, Matt. One last question, and then uh, David and I will wrap up. This is from uh, Linda H. Thoughts on Jair Brown. Do we use more three-safety looks? Absolutely, they're going to use more three-safety looks. That That's in the plans. And you know what's really interesting to me, Matt, is look what they did with, with Nickelback, with Isaiah Oliver. He is not built like your Nickelbacks of the past. You know, Kwan Williams was 5'9", 170. Isaiah Oliver is six feet over 200 pounds, which immediately shows me that they want a nickelback who's interchangeable with a linebacker role. And I think as far as the safeties go, they've run three safety sets before. They broke Talano Ufanga in in 2021 with running three safety sets. But the key for any three safety set 
is is it positional interchangeability because sometimes you're going to want that third safety to be more of, of a linebacker. Sometimes you're going to want him to be more of a high post safety. Sometimes you're going to want him to be more of a big nickel. Sometimes even an edge rusher if you want to line up close to the line and, and bring extra uh, pressure to the quarterback. When Daniel Bullocks was saying that we think Jair Brown has our DNA the other day, he meant that Jair Brown can wear all of those different hats. And it's going to be so important for Brown to be able to wear those different hats because that's what's going to be able to get him onto the field as the third safety. And the reason I brought up Isaiah Oliver earlier is that I think this is a bigger plan of interchangeability for the 49ers. They want that nickel to not just be able to cover small slot receivers. They want him to be able to cover tight ends, to be able to deal with uh, the run game. And I think they're going to want the same thing out of Jair Brown. I think they're very impressed with him so far, and I think they've earmarked that third safety slot for him because the way that Deshaun Gibson and Talano Ufanga played together last year, I think they had nine interceptions between the two of them. Uh, You don't want to take one of those guys off the field until you absolutely have to. So three safeties, that's, that's the answer for the 49ers to be able to maximize the talent that they currently have on the roster. And two of those safeties, uh, Hufanga and Brown, are, are big guys and, and rough-and-tumble guys who, uh, you know, uh, are, are not uh, a far cry from being linebackers. Uh, so, um, you know, they, they ought to be able to kind of handle any of that close to the line of scrimmage stuff that uh, anyone throws at them. Well, uh, this has been good. David, uh, I wanted you to talk a little bit about a really good story, really interesting story sort of jealous that you got this story because I I think it's really um, a a, a fantastic one and and speaks to um, who this person is. But uh, you've got a good Christian McCaffrey story on the horizon. Do you want to preview that a little bit? Yeah. So uh, this is this happened last week, uh, last weekend, last Saturday. So almost a, a week ago now at this point, Christian McCaffrey hosted a Madden tournament. It's called the Logan Bowl. He hosted it at the 49ers facility, but only Fred Warner out of the participants was there. It was a bunch of other NFL stars elsewhere. Fred Warner actually ended up winning the tournament. It raised a bunch of money for what uh, the Christian McCaffrey Foundation has named the Logan Project. So you're wondering who Logan is. Well, Logan was a 13-year-old boy who passed away due to leukemia a few years ago, who was a massive Christian McCaffrey fan. And uh, one of his wishes while he was in the hospital was, you know, because he was in the hospital during, during the whole COVID era when the isolation was especially bad. One of his wishes was, uh, he wanted to start, and it wasn't just a wish uh, that this, this young boy was actually trying to work on this himself. He was trying to get hospitals set up with gaming systems for, for young patients. So, so that these patients would be able to stay in contact with their friends and, it maybe lift their spirits up while while they're in the hospital, and uh, you know, unfortunately, he passed away. Uh, he was working on this at the time of his death. Big Christian McCaffrey fan. He was even buried in in Christian McCaffrey's jersey. Uh, there's a lot more that I get into in the story. There was real a real connection between him and Christian. Um, anyway, Christian McCaffrey obviously took notice of all this and decided to perpetuate the efforts of of Logan Hale. So. Um, that's what I wrote about uh, Christian McCaffrey doing a lot of really, really good stuff off the field. I think a lot of times you see some of these charitable efforts and 
I'm not saying they're bad, but it's usually just a player, you know, attaching his name to something and, you know, on everybody goes with their day. But, but Christian McCaffrey has been very, very personally involved with this. Um, and once you, I think, read this story and read some of the details behind it and his connection with Logan, you'll probably be able to, to understand a little bit more as to why. Yeah, it seems to have really kind of struck a, a true chord with him. And, and it's a great idea that he had. I mean, what a what a way for a, a child who's kind of isolated in a hospital room to be able to interact uh, and compete and, and have fun. Um, it it it's, uh, sounds like a, a, a truly wonderful idea that uh, Christian McCaffrey is going to is going to help uh, perpetuate uh, from, from here on out. It's, it's terrific. Well, we, we look forward to reading that. Um, maybe uh, if there's uh, some BOSA news this summer, David and I will, will have another chat like this at some point. But for now, um, we will be signing off. David is going to be leaving the country uh, for a, a, a big trip with his, uh, his new wife. Uh, very excited about that. Excited to hear your your tales from from abroad, and we'll we'll get into all that when you get back, David. Yeah, we're heading out to Africa. Going to go to Tanzania, Zanzibar, and then Dubai, which is obviously uh, not in Africa. That's in the Middle East. So all new spots for me, and I'm sure that we'll have plenty to talk about when I get back. I think it's going to be a little hotter out in Dubai than it's going to reach <laughs> in California this summer. So yeah, we'll see about that. You better pack lots of sunscreen, I think, for the safari, whatnot. I'll be ready for training camp, though. It'll seem uh, nice and breezy at training camp in comparison. Well, yeah, you're used to watching hyenas and uh, and cheetahs uh, in, in practices. <laughs> yeah. get, get some real life versions uh, in Africa. Yeah, there we go. There we go. All right. Well, that, that, so much fun, Matt. Thanks for for hosting today's show too and taking those questions. I appreciate it. Okay, well, well, we'll talk to everybody soon. Have a good summer. Bye, everybody. Hey, football fans, this is Diana Rossini from The Athletic. Get the top stories in pro football snapped directly to your inbox with our latest NFL newsletter, Scoop City. Jacob Robinson and I will bring you the daily scoop of top NFL articles, posts, and podcasts every Monday to Friday. Sign up for free now at theathletic.com backslash scoop.